This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 329, Telescope Making, Part 3, Amateur Space Telescopes. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? Good. And as we sort of mentioned in the in the pre-show here, it is bloody cold. Yeah. Everywhere across your country and mine. Yeah. We we have wind chills of minus 30 Fahrenheit, which is minus 34 Celsius. And the snow in the drifts is approaching knee deep and is pretty much everywhere deep enough. It's going to go in the top of your boot. And we mentioned that uh, uh, on, on Christmas Day, on New Year's Day, on Christmas Day, the temperature in Winnipeg was colder than the temperature on Mars. It got down to New Year's minus... Day. On New Year's Day, yeah. It got down yeah. to minus 51 Celsius, which is, I'm sure, infin- infinity in Fahrenheit. <laughs> so, so I mean, can you... I, I can't, and, so, and, and my friend was in this, and she just said it was it was incomprehensibly cold. Like, yeah. you, just, you, did, you do not leave the house. She went out one time. I, I went to Michigan State University as an undergraduate, the winners of this year's Rose Bowl, I think I'm required to say. And... Um, there was a couple of times it got down to uh, minus 40. It was like pretty much every year in February. But then one year it hit minus 70 wind chill, minus seven zero Fahrenheit wind chill. And they closed campus. It's like one of the very few times in, in memory they've closed campus because your eyeballs start to freeze over at that temperature. Cool. <laughs> All right, well, let's get rolling. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Eighth Light Inc. Eighth Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. Eighth Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.eighthlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thedigit8th. L-I-G-H-T dot com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft. So as we've said before, all telescopes really want to be in space. In part three of our series on amateur telescope making, we bring you up to speed on the final frontier, amateurs building space telescopes. The hardware and software is available off the shelf and launches have never been more affordable. The era of amateur space telescopes has arrived. Now, when you put this topic on the docket, I could not believe my eyeballs because (laughs) this is the kind of thing that I would put as the topic. And you would roll your eyes and you would say, no, no, we're not ready for that yet. It's a little, you know, a little premature. Let's wait a couple more years. It finally became enough years. We've been recording since 2006 and... Yeah, it's eight years makes a huge difference. We, yeah. We've gone from watching Spaceship One uh, win the X Prize to now crowdsourcing satellites. Yeah, and there have been a couple of these now that, have, that are coming together. So 
So where do you want to start? Do you want to talk about, well, let's talk about the the various technologies and new companies and the things that have come together, the trends that have really made this affordable and available in just the last couple of years. Well, so when we save space telescopes, this can mean everything from, well, there, there's one called Arcade, which is being put together by Planetary Resources. It's a bonafide space telescope. Think Hubble, a little bit smaller, but all the bells and whistles of a space telescope. But then you also have a lot of basically soda can sized devices that have a variety of open source technologies on them. Most often Arduinos, which are just little circuit chips that are easy to plug into your computer and code and you're, you're off and running. And uh, there's, they're sending up low cost cameras attached to these Arduinos and, um, basically chucking them off the side of the International Space Telescope. Yeah, and we've got uh, just like in the last couple of days when we're recording this, uh, they attached the Earth Cam, which is a uh, an Earth-facing camera to the International Space Station, which is going to be broadcasting live views, and it's a steerable camera. And it was done by a by a, a private company, and it was launched to the space station and attached onto the space station. So... Um, yeah, I mean, I think we've got, but I think also we've got like launches or costs are coming down as well. Well, it's, it's not so much that the costs are coming down, uh, cause that, that's still not entirely the case, but if you get your spacecraft small enough, you don't have to have the cost of the launch go down because the launch cost is related directly to how much you weigh. So these little craft are piggybacking along with uh, other satellites that are already on on board and paying the bulk of the launch cost. So we've actually seen a a couple of different launches. There were four of the pocket quebs or pocket cubes, I'm not sure how they're pronouncing this, uh, that launched on one of the Russian Demper uh, rockets in November. Uh, Skycube launched some of theirs also in November. And these, sorry, RGSAT launched uh, two of theirs in November. And these different satellites, they're, they're literally about the size of a soda can or smaller. There was a launch. There was actually, there was a week where the record number of satellites had been launched in one week. It was like 25 satellites in one week. And then later that week or the next week, that record got broken by an even larger collection of of microsatellites, same same kind of deal, right? And so you, as you said, you know, you can, you can with the miniaturization of technology now, you can pack down all of this stuff into this tiny little form factor, and as you said, just stick into all the nooks and crannies of the launch fairing, and and off it goes. And and not all of them can count as space telescopes. I mean, some of these things uh, are getting launched strictly to reflect back amateur radio signals are getting launched so that you can tweet to space and have space to respond. Uh, there's lots of different reasons that these things are going into space. There, there was a project by a Cornell graduate student to launch basically little tiny chips into space. These are the Kicksats. But what's kind of awesome is the fact that there are some of these that are being designed so that they can take pictures either of space or of Earth either case you're looking at optics I'll call that a telescope and uh, they're accessible to school groups and private corporations 
So talk me through this then. Let's say that that I am a wealthy individual. I've I've already spent a car's worth of money on my wonderful telescope and I've got this, you know, great big telescope and mount and observatory <laughs> and I, and I've still got a little money kicking around in the bank or a lot of money kicking around in the bank and I want to I want to take it to the next level. So so what's the process then if I want to actually design and launch my own space telescope or my own my own mission? Well, nowadays you, you don't even need to design your own. That's that's the kind of awesome thing is is projects like Pocket Cube, uh, spelled with a Q, so P O C K Q U B E, which is why it might be pronounced slightly different. I'm not sure. Okay. Um they they have designed a standardized infrastructure that you can lo- use to to launch these Pico satellites. Uh, they're looking at anywhere from a few hundreds to tens of thousands of dollars uh, per device plus launch cost. And they're hoping to piggyback on other missions. Um, this is one of the ones that they've already launched for. They're looking at a second launch in Q2 of 2014. So sometime after March, before June. Um, and what they're doing is they're saying, we've figured out the technologies that will work. We are telling you, here are the plug and play pieces you have. So instead of going to Newegg and ordering the pieces for your desktop computer, you go to Pocket Cube and order the pieces you need for your low cost satellite. It's it's a new DIY way of looking at exploring space. And so for for all missions, what are you going to need? You're going to need like a power system. You're going to need communication system. You're going to need some kind of orientation Right. And all of this is designed into what they're doing. So, so right. You need a way to keep your orbit uh, oriented. So gyroscopes generally are the way they do this. Uh, you're going to need a power source, whether it be solar, drag-induced, onboard battery that lasts however long your mission lasts. And then you need the sensors that you want in a way to get commands to the mission and data back from the mission. But it's not all that complex when you start comparing it to what, well, your smartphone can do. And there's actually different groups that have essentially launched the moral equivalent of a smartphone into space. So these are your satellite phones, essentially. Right. And they're running, I know, like one was just running Android. They just yeah, launched exactly. a satellite running Android. Work like a charm. <laughs> yeah. So so when it comes to to your bonafide space telescope, what you're going to want to do is probably partner with Planetary Resources. They're a commercial company that's looking to design a whole series of spacecraft. Um, the The first one in their Archide or Archide series is, is a space telescope. And one of the things they did that just about everyone else did too is they raised money through Kickstarter. So they were able to raise $1.5 million. They were only planning to raise a million, but they they exceeded their goal. Um, and they were actually the first of these projects to get funded. Uh, they, they were funded all the way back in 2012, but they still haven't launched. Um, what they're doing is a lot more complicated, so it's it's going to take them time. The yeah, and I know that the the one point five million that they raised is not the actual launch cost of the satellite. It's a fraction of it. It's not a fraction. It's a pretty big component of it. I think it's about a, a 
third or a quarter. Like I think the whole mission is going to cost more like five or 10 million. But the goal is, I know that their goal is to bring all these costs down. So that these, these, these are right. kind of off the shelf. You, you pick all your pieces and the law and the cost is more in the million dollar mark or the hundred right. thousand dollar mark. Like right. you're really going to bring, because at the end of the day, the components, as we said, they're off the shelf, they're miniaturized, the smaller they get, the cheaper they get. And it's really more about hardening in the, like hardening these components to the environment of space. Right. But you could literally take your smartphone, you could take your iPhone, stick it on a rocket, launch it into space, and it could record video as it tumbled and would have no way to get it back to Earth. Exactly. But, and right? its battery would only last about 24 hours. Yeah. So so the these things will work there. So it's just a matter now of making these more of a commodity. And and as the prices come down, the, the companies are coming on board. And planetary resources is one. What are some and others? So so on the, the other price extreme, you have the RGSAT people. Uh, they did a different Kickstarter. They were looking to raise 35000 They instead raised $106,000. And for them, that was the entire cost of not just the one they planned, but actually two separate CubeSats. And their goal was to put together a platform that... Because it's built purely on Arduinos using standardized drivers, standardized technology, uh, school groups, uh, clubs, amateurs, DIY hobbyists, commercial outfits that don't have huge goals can all essentially buy time on their satellites to run their experiments. And they've partnered with NASA to get their launch costs uh, essentially paid for and they're, they're, again, working to create a standard open source platform. They launched both of their spacecraft uh, and they, they've actually been deployed now from the International Space Station. And you can go to their website and, and I've linked to all of this off of a post on starstrider.com. You can go to their website and you can actually look to, to buy slots of time. Right now you have to spend $1,000 minimum. That gives you four separate slots to run experiments. But that's in, in the grand scheme of things, $1,000 is, is something that you can feasibly do as a school group through selling of a monster number of cookies. Yeah. But I mean, you as a researcher, when you want to get access to telescope time, there is a limited number of telescopes and even a more limited number of space telescopes. And if you're a researcher and you want access to them, you essentially have to write a wonderful proposal and then beg and grovel for telescope time. Right. And, and unfortunately, these still aren't suitable for for professional researchers. These are still educational tools. So we we still have a long ways to go. Well, you can look at some some of the things like the like Canada has the most telescope, also right, known right. as the the Humble Space Telescope, yes. and uh, and this I think it was eight million dollars to build and launch this telescope, and and it's been used for uh, like gravitational microlensing and variable discovery, stars and variable stars and and things like that. So so if you specialize the capabilities of the telescope and deal with all the miniaturization, I'm sure we're right around the corner from people putting up telescopes for for pay telescopes, you know? Like yeah. someone will put up a telescope where where you'll pay your $1,000 for X amount of time on the scope, and then you just put that into your research and you put that into your grant. So instead of both doing your grant and asking for the money, 
you'll, you know, you'll just ask for the money or sorry, asking, do your grant and ask for telescope time. You'll do your grant and ask for money and use that money to buy telescope time on one of the optional yeah, places. Yeah, unfortunately for a lot of researchers, our needs are so specific that that the instruments, not the telescope, but the instruments are in the, the tens of millions of dollars case. So I, I think there we are still another decade out, um, is especially where NASA has, has put forward there's going to be no more massive observatories getting launched in the future. So there's going to be people driven to try and figure out how to build the low-cost low instrumentation. But... Um, while we can get the smaller systems, the soda can sized systems down to reasonable costs, the, uh, Hubble space telescope is fairly small, but it's still the size of a school bus and, and that is still out of reach. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I think as well, I mean, the goal with, with SpaceX is to really, they haven't, they're not there yet, but the goal is to really bring down those launch costs significantly. Right. And and, and that's where it's the trade-off between how much the launch costs and how much the telescope costs. Because if you're looking at a few million dollars to a few tens of million dollars for the instrument, you still have to come up with that money somewhere. Yeah. But I mean, with these CubeSats, you're only looking at a few tens of thousands of dollars for the launch costs to incorporate your your satellite within a larger payload, especially with these old like uh, ICBMs and stuff. I mean, it's it's very reasonable. Right. So so it's just a matter of what is your goal. So if I'm trying to to do astronomical research, I'm going to want a mirror that's bigger than what will fit in a soda can. And and that's where the launch costs are still quite high and where the instrument costs are still quite high and the mirror costs are still quite high. But if I want to take basic pictures of the Earth, if I want to take large scale images of the sky or simple photometry like they do with most, those are things that I can start to do small. Mm-hmm. It all depends on your science goals. And unfortunately, most science still requires school bus sized or larger space telescopes yeah no but i mean when you think about like some of the telescopes that join us for the virtual star party i mean we have some people with 14 inch telescopes i wonder how small a telescope you could make that would give you out in space what kind of quality would you get you know how much smaller you know if you launched a four inch telescope into space that's bordering on soda can size, you know, three and a half inches. Right. And and that's actually sort of been happening. There there was a space telescope a few years ago that uh, essentially broke, but its finder scope was still in use and it was about that size. But the issue you run into is a four inch scope doesn't have a lot of light gathering power and your light gathering power is strictly based on, on how big that mirror is. And you also don't have hugely wonderful resolution with only four inches only 10 centimeters or so. Um, So you're still better off at that size to build on the ground. It's still cheaper to build on the ground and you'll get better images with your larger mirror on the ground unless you're trying to do the very specialized task of, of photometry on bright objects. Right, or you're attempting to view wavelengths that may be blocked by the Earth's atmosphere. Like well, you, for that, stuff, you're still right? going to run into the problem that the detectors are far larger. So while we can get optical 
instruments that are smaller. Uh, we still haven't figured out how to get the radio smaller because that has to do with what's the wavelength. Uh, infrared, again, you're running into issues of the wavelengths are bigger. X-ray detectors are larger. Ultraviolet detectors are larger. Now, right now, there are thousands of active satellites. There are yes. hundreds of thousands of chunks of space debris of varying sizes larger than a centimeter. If we're going to be allowing more and more people to put up these little tiny satellites, is this going to add to the space debris problem? Well, most of these have a very finite lifespan. They're being put into low Earth orbit, so you have the atmospheric drag is pulling them down and down and down and down. Uh, and when you're the size of a soda can, you don't have any rockets to keep you boosted into your orbit over time. So uh, you're looking at things that are maybe going to last a year at most and then happily deorbit themselves. So what we're going to see is more and more shooting stars that aren't bits of dust. They're actually uh, dead satellites. So let's kind of imagine the future, though, right? Because, I mean, now that, that all of this technology, I mean, obviously... A mirror is a mirror is a mirror, and you can't miniaturize right. the mirror because then it just becomes a, a worse light-gathering tool. So you definitely want the largest possible mirror that you can get into space. Um, but everything else is now gotten onto the computer curve where over time the price of these, the miniaturization is happening, the price of these things are coming down. You can imagine and match that with SpaceX's goals to lower the cost of space launches by a factor of 10 over the next right. 10 years or whatever. What do you see then? I mean, what do you see in the future? Right? Imagine launches are a tenth the price. The miniaturization has been going nonstop for another 10 years. What's going to be possible? Um, at that point, I think it's going to start to be the equivalent of companies like iTelescope are starting to reach out on orbit and put smaller telescopes on orbit. It, it's hard to say what time scale that's going to take place on, but organizations like the Folks Telescope, which is also the Los Campanas Telescope Network that Google's put together, these are educational facilities that have already invested surface side millions of dollars into staffing costs, infrastructure costs, to put networks of telescopes across the surface of the planet for schools to use, for private companies to rent time on and individuals to rent time on. As we move forward, I can see Google, I can see individuals investing in creating not necessarily networks, but first one and then multiple smaller size telescopes on orbit. Um, it's, it's going to be a long time before it's individuals who aren't simply super wealthy who are considering doing this, but it's already reaching the point where universities are looking at projects that they can test in space. It, it's, it's a complicated issue simply because there is that argument of are you better off spending your money on a very large mirror on the surface of the planet or launching into space? And if you're launching, are you better off preparing something that goes up and comes back down on a sounding rocket or are you better investing in something that will stay up much longer? And this is one of those times where I can forecast something and I'm no more likely to be right than the fortune telling machine at the carnival. It's 
technology innovating and it's it's very hard to predict how those innovations will take place. Well, but I think you mentioned something that I think is very important, which is that universities will start to get access to be able to use some of their funding. And there's a ton of aerospace uh, students who've yeah. never and roboticists and and computer technologists who've never had a chance to actually be involved in a launch of a mission from beginning to end. And what better practice in preparation for a career down the road being in the aerospace industry or being in the satellite industry than as part of your graduate product, you know, your master's degree, whatever you designed, built, launched and maintain a satellite. <laughs> and and what was cool is when I was researching for this this uh, episode, I found two different student groups who'd basically done just that. There was the Kicksat project that was put forward by Zach Manchester, a graduate student at Cornell University. And then there was the student-run Space Concordia project. Again, both of these projects were funded through Kickstarter. And these are ways that students are finding to, well, put their ideas on orbit. And and one thing that I think is neat to point out is all of these successful projects so far have all been on Kickstarter, which is a platform that when you put your idea up, up, it's either funded or not. People's money doesn't get spent unless the complete needed funding for a project is reached. Indiegogo, which is the main competitor for Kickstarter, has an option that allows you to uh, put your idea up and whatever amount of money you get, no matter how big or small it is, you get to keep that. And I've seen some bigger commercial ideas go up on Indiegogo that fell flat, did not get near the funding they needed. And I really appreciate the fact that all these successful ones so far have consistently been on Kickstarter where they were saying, look, it's it's make it or not. Trust us. And they, they've hit their target. There's been a lot of fails on Kickstarter, but the successes have all been there. The first exception might be Mars One. Mars One is currently running an Indiegogo campaign to try and raise $400,000 towards uh, their first Mars lander and satellite. Uh, they have 20 days to go and they're about 25% of the way to their goal. It, it's interesting to see how the bigger companies are using the crowdsourcing not just as a fundraising mechanism, but also as an advertising mechanism that raises money for them. That's kind of a new uh, business model that yeah. that I find intriguing. Yeah, well, personally, I invest in everyone that comes my way. I invest in all the Kickstarters that have anything to do with space exploration, telescopes, amateur satellites, any any of them that I can get my hands on. Um, and then we promote them like crazy on Universe Today. I'm I'm really happy to help out anyone who wants to get the word out about the Kickstarter they're doing. I'm, I'm a huge fan of this kind of thing. Whatever we can do to, ju- to kickstart this future industry, I, I love it. It's, it's going to be interesting to see just what happens in the next two years. I don't think it's two years away. I think it is already started. We've already seen launches. And I think these next two years are really going to define how Moore's Law applies to, well, space exploration. And we will see how good of a fortune teller you are. (laughs) Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Pamela. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Astronomy Cast, a nonprofit resource provided by Astrosphere New Media Association, Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. 
You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at astronomycast.com. You can email us at info at astronomycast.com. Tweet us at astronomycast. Like us on Facebook or circle us on Google+. We record our show live on Google+, every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, or 2000 Greenwich Mean Time. If you miss the live event, you can always catch up over at CosmoQuest.org. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. residents. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend us to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Our music is provided by Travis Searle and the show is edited by Preston Gibson. <laughs>